Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. Um, As I mentioned last week, I am going to be heading to Uganda in a few short weeks. Well, maybe like eight weeks (laughs) if everything goes smoothly. And I will hopefully be bringing you the podcast from Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. So um, I hope you'll stay with us. All right. Um, Well, let's get to today's topic. So I mentioned last week that we were going to be talking about a new book called Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. And before we get to my guests, I just want to take a moment to report that in March of this year, the UK government declared that lobsters, crabs, octopuses, and related species will be included under the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill. Now, you might wonder, why is she telling me this? Why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant to today's um, guests. And what this means for crabs, lobsters, and octopuses, and related species, it means that they can finally get legal protection that protects them from the practices um, like being boiled alive and having the tendons of their pinchers cut. All I can say is if you need a law to stop you from engaging in such horrific practices, well, shame on you. (laughs) Um, But I'm a little bit harsher than my guests. Today, my guests are two renowned philosophers, Alice Crary and Lori Grun, and they've published a new book called Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. And among other important issues that they tackle, they invite us to rethink and recalibrate our relationship with other species. Incidentally, they have a chapter on octopuses and discuss the film My Octopus Teacher. Personally, I was not a fan of the film. However, it put octopuses on the mental map of many people. At the same time, some of those same people will happily eat octopuses while raving about the film. To me, this is a reflection of the depth of our cognitive dissonance when it comes to connecting with individual animals while purchasing a meal made of the very same species. But hey, I'm not the philosopher. They are. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am talking to Alice Crary and Lori Grun, authors of a new book called Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Oh, I'm really excited. You know, and I'm, I'm this is such an important book. And before we dive into the book, I would love to hear a little bit from both of you about your backgrounds and because you're both really accomplished and distinguished in different ways. And I really like for the audience to get a sense of how you came to uh, be focused on the work that you are doing. And so 
you know, let's start with you, Alice. Uh, you are a moral and social philosopher. And I'm wondering kind of what does that mean? And when did you start orienting towards other animals? Well, thank you very much for that kind gesture. And um, um, I, I would say that philosophy has played a really big role in my life, sort of oddly so, because I had a brilliant older sister named Jen who was interested in philosophy from the time she was a child. So there, there I didn't study it seriously till I was in college. I, I did my undergraduate work at Harvard, but but unlike some kids, especially in the U.S., who won't have encountered philosophy, I kind of came to the university thinking, hey, this is one of the things one could do. But with regard to relationships to animals and things, I um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest with my mother and my sisters, and we spent most of our free time, our holidays, backpacking on the Olympic Peninsula in the North Cascades and sometimes in national parks a little bit farther away. And I had a family for whom things like responsible citizenship and civic engagement were really important. And even though my mother wasn't directly involved in environmental activism, she had this strong sense, which she instilled in us, that the natural world was of great value and that it was under threat from human activity and I, as a philosopher, I didn't set out to honor that inheritance immediately, but I would describe my career as partly finding different ways to do so. Wonderful. Um, I love hearing about that connection that you have to um, the natural world and how that's informed your work. And what about you, Lori? You are a leading scholar in animal studies and feminist philosophy. How did you find yourself integrating non-human animals into your work? So actually, it started pretty early on. I actually was um, in a philosophy class when I learned about and was stunned to find out about um, how we treated animals. And so it was in philosophy. I was already interested, you know, in the way that most people tend to be in animals based on the relationships I had with my dogs growing up and other animal companions at home. And, and so I had a kind of a fondness for animals, I would say, but um, when I was in a philosophy class and I learned about sort of the area which we now call animal ethics, I got both interested in that area and also interested in philosophy as a result of that. That's wonderful. And of course, now the natural extension of those two questions is how did the two of you come together to write Animal Crisis? So um, Alice and I had been um, in the sim very similar circles in the philosophical world. Um, we became friends and we were both, and we talk a little bit about this at the beginning of the book, but we were both in Princeton um, and were asked to write a review essay on the field of animal ethics um, that both of us have done work in. And as we were doing that, we decided we had much more we wanted to say than would have made sense in a review essay, because of course, review essays are, as you know, you know, about the field, but not your own sort of critical engagement with the, the field. So we decided to write this urgent book in the context of the, what we describe as the crisis. Yeah. And I agree that it is urgent. Um, now, before we kind of 
unpack a lot of the things that you cover in the book, I wanted to sort of tackle the the subheading, a, a new uh, critical theory, because one of the things that you you both discuss early on is is critical animal theory and and how it differs from animal ethics. And I'm I'm wondering if one of you could talk about what is the difference, you know, so that as we move forward, people listening kind of can get that sense of of what we're really talking about. Alice, do you want me to go or do you want to go? Um, well, I'll say one thing. I'm just, there's a lot to be said about this, Jennifer, but I'll say one thing that's sort of at the heart of our thinking. And then Lori can expand in the many different ways I know that she can so nicely. Um, but um, one thing we're doing is we are in engaging with traditional, at least at the beginning of the book, with traditional animal ethics, which tends to conceive of um, ethical theorizing as formulating a theory and then applying it to cases. And some of what we're doing is focusing on very traditional animal ethics, uh, um, utilitarian and rights-based theory, and showing how that way of approaching animal ethics simply isn't addressing what we call the crisis of human, the catastrophe of human-animal relations today. But we're drawing more deeply on um, other traditions that engage in what they would recall not... um, um, theory formulation and application, but what's called liberating theorizing. So the idea there is in focusing uh, their traditions of this in uh, radical feminist thought. And um, I- I'm also deeply influenced, and I know Lori is too, by um, members of the first generation of the Frankfurt School. There's the idea that listening to the voices of the oppressed, listen, paying attention to suffering is itself a normative Um, activity. And that requires quite a lot of unpacking. But the idea is that um, with animals, as with human beings, focusing on the particularity of their lives and experience by itself gives you a normative orientation. So you're doing something that we could call theorizing. This is what we mean by critical animal theory. Um, You're theorizing about in response to um, to those particularities, but you're not doing this other thing, which is coming up with a grand theory and then applying it. Um, and uh, for us, this is the way to be responsive to what's happening now is to unlock the resources of these radical traditions, um, which are paying attention to suffering as it exists. That was great, Alice. I'm, I don't want to say much more than that, but I, I do want to say um, that there is um, a really important sense in which this tradition or these traditions that Alice was just alluding to um, are um, sort of help us to understand not just our relationships with animals and the current crisis, but helps us put these Um, the current moment into both a historical and a material context, which is really essential. The abstract theorizing that we uh, eschew, as it were, we we don't want to work within that um, traditional model, really sort of kind of appears without real people in without real context, without real history, and without a whole lot of knowledge about the individual animal others that are so important, that their lives are so important to understand and value. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, and, you know, I think that, that folks who want to get a better sense of all of that history 
can do so in reading Animal Crisis. One of the things that you both bring up is is that there's a problem with ranking ourselves higher relative to other species and that even within species or across species, excuse me, ranking um, and how this can actually promote continued exploitation and suffering. Can you talk about this tendency we have to rank and we do this, and something you bring up is even among groups of different people, we do this. And so there's this problem with that. And 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 just kind of wondering, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I, I th- so this is Lori. And um, one of the things that's really an important um, sort of idea that we bring from ecofeminist thinking, for example, is the way in which these categorizations of oppositions, so nature, culture, human, animal, men, women, um, these kind of binary constructions are just that. They're constructions and they're there or what some people also call value dualisms. Eco, the late ecofeminist um, philosopher Karen Warren, for example, labeled these things value dualisms. And what it basically means is that the, the valued side is held up and the less valued side is you know, on the bottom. So that's sort of the beginning of this hierarchical ranking, as you were asking about. And part of what happens in that is that that value distinction becomes, quote unquote, naturalized in the sense that it starts to seem like this is the order of things. And the human is somehow better than the animal, as if the human isn't also the animal. Um, And that somehow there's that that culture is better than nature and that in progress, in making progress culturally, we can extract the raw material of nature without thinking about sort of the implications of that because culture is more valuable than nature, for example. So these rankings, um, I think, are very much a part of the order of our social relations. And part of what is happening in this ranking system is it doesn't just apply to these binaries or these dualisms, but it there's more nuance. So white, cisgendered, able-bodied men are more important than white, cisgendered, able-bodied women. And they're more important that, you know, you so that and and the and these distinctions. Um, carry on. And it's part of what shapes our social organization and our relationships to nature and animals. I could say a lot more, but I will stop. And I'm curious, um, do you think that these uh, value dualisms allow us to continue to engage in activities that are harmful to others um, that are ranked less? Um, well, one thing I'm I'm responding to your question, Jennifer, and I'm also following up um, on the really I think incredibly helpful things that Lori just said is that one of the things that we're doing in the historical gestures in the book to which you referred um, is tracing what can be called um, ways in which um, the use of animals, the sort of callous and horrifically violent use of animals as mere resources has been connected 
um, from the beginning of European modernity um, in really specific ways with um, forms of oppression of human beings that take the form of um, what could be called animalization. So that categories of race and um, gender and ability are actually partly constituted um, by comparisons to animals that are seen as um, invidious. And, and so that it can generate a logic. This is one of our concerns in the book. It does often generate a logic such that um, it seems like the politically liberating move for human beings who are oppressed is to say we're not animals, we're human beings in a way that reiterates the ranking of human and animal. And one thing we're doing is we do uh, we do affirm the the impulse to that move in the sense that that um, it's understandable. But we're also talking about a more fundamental dismantling of the political logic that seems to suggest it because it simply retains the structure that um, is devastating to animals and that oppresses groups of human beings. Absolutely. Um, and I think that this indigenous populations have had a much more connected um, experience. Even if they consumed other animals, they often believe that they um, took in the qualities and experiences of those animals. I want to talk about farming for a minute. So um, pigs in particular. So pigs are pretty amazing. And just recently, there was a study that found that pig grunts are not simply random. They are expressions of their feelings and their state of being. And so the researchers who did this work have this idea that they're going to develop a, a way using artificial intelligence for farmers to better understand the needs of their pigs. And, you know, one of the things I imagine that pigs need is not to be sent to, you know, mass slaughter um, because we know that they know this is happening. And there's a ton of research about the awareness of farm animals um, and their experience about what's happening. And you also talk about cows in the book. Um, and, you know, one of the things in the, in the chapter on, on pigs was that you discussed how when farmers during the pandemic who usually sent their pigs to slaughter had to kill the animals themselves um, that they, the farmers, suffered from doing this. And, and I, I'm wondering, what does this say about how disconnected we are from the food that many people eat? Oh, it's a, that's a really an excellent question. And um, I think that disconnection is really profound. Um, it's, a, it's a disconnection that at least from a philosophical point of view or, or a theoretical point of view um, sort of amounts to what Carol J. Adams calls and we have an absent referent. And this is something we discuss. So what that means is that we don't when we purchase, you know, pork, quote unquote, we don't notice that that's actually from a pig and we don't know anything about the pig's emotional life, about the pig's um, that particular pig or pigs in general's um, sort of high level of sophisticated intelligence and emotions and 
um, as you were just saying, their uh, their ability to vocalize their interests and needs. Um, it's just that we don't understand it when they vocalize and we're maybe going to learn how or maybe not. I'd be a little skeptical. But so the idea is that we are really fundamentally disconnected. But unfortunately, it's also the case that um, because of what we were talking about earlier, these hierarchical rankings that um, give us a sense, what we might call uh, sort of a false ideology about our superiority, um, we are not able to even see the animals when they're right in front of us, given that background, given that they are the they're beings that we just use to eat there's kind of a, a real uh, disconnect, not just between us and the animals that we're eating, but between the idea that these are sensitive, smart, engaging animals that are kind of very similar to dogs in that way, and we don't eat dogs, um, that that idea is disconnected from what it is that we do. We can't put those two things together. Scientists and philosophers can talk about the incredible intricacies of a pig's experiences, their lives, their relationships, their minds, and that will have no connection to what people do in the restaurant or the grocery store. And that's another feature of um, the crisis. It's not simply a practical crisis as it were, but it's a crisis in our thinking. Do Do Alice wanna add something to that? I, I I love what Laurie said, and it, it occurred to me there was a way to draw a connection back to things we were saying before that could be helpful, which is that simply that part of what um, critical animal theory as we do it involves is ideology critique. That and that sounds like a you know a theoretical word one might throw around in a. Uh, scholarly conversation, but here it means something really concrete, the kinds of things that Lori's talking about. We have to be aware of linguistic devices like the words we use for the kinds of food packages we get in grocery stores that deflect away from the recognition that these are parts of sentient animals' bodies that are being sold. So, and, and, um, yeah, we talk, we follow up on the work of a lot of really wonderful thinkers who um, map all kinds of linguistic, social, legal, material, physical practices that that keep us from recognizing what's going on. That was all in what Lori said. I just thought this is what this is what we mean by critical animal theory. It is part of it. It's not all of it, but it's a, it's an important part of it. Well, so it's interesting. I'm not a philosopher, right? I study animal behavior and, and I've always, since I was young, not really seen a distinction between myself and other animals. I've always just like want to be present to, to know their experience. And, and I still feel that way, whether it's a lizard, a spider or a squirrel or whatever. So, but I, I, I'm curious for your thoughts on this because as we were talking about sort of the farmers and, and what you were saying, Lori, it struck me if it's true that uh, these, that, that, that there's this lack of recognition by the farmers, I'm not talking necessarily about the person in the supermarket who picks up the package um, that's just labeled pork chop. Why would they suffer for killing the, their own pigs, right? Why would a farmer emotionally suffer unless there's this deep inside recognition. And I have observed, as many people have sometimes seen footage, 
then there's also this flip side with factory workers at slaughterhouses of rage that they seem to perpetrate on the animals. And, and I sort of feel like it's a consequence of the actual activity that they're doing for work because they can't quite cope with what they're having to do. And it also happens with primates in labs. You know, somebody might start working in a primate lab because they think they're going to change the system. And then they just become part of the perpetrators of the violence on those animals. And, and it changes them inside. And so how can a farmer suffer emotionally killing its own pig if it doesn't see the pig as an individual? It's such a great question. I think we were we were both really sort of bothered by this story, too, and thinking what what is happening? I'm, I think one answer and I'm, it's not the only answer, obviously, because people are very sort of are motivated in a complex set of ways based on their experiences and their histories and their current conditions. So I don't want to generalize about what it is that's happening for each of them. But I, I suspect that at least part of the story has to do with a kind of in some way, romanticized tradition that they're engaged in, right? So when you talk to farmers of all sorts, which I've done in different contexts, um, they see themselves as engaged in meaningful work that their fathers or their grandfathers also engaged in. And that work has a particular teleology, by which I mean it has a, a, a pattern um, that moves to an end point, which is the consumption of these animals by others. And so I think at least part of the distress that the farmers experience by having to kill the pigs, and let's just give a little context of what this is. So what happened during the pandemic is that some of the slaughterhouses, some of the meatpacking plants shut down because they became hotspots for the COVID virus. And so during that period, the production of, of pig bodies for slaughter and consumption um, is very, very routinized in the sense that you have to do it at a particular moment. Otherwise, the, the pig weighs too much. Um, so the reason that the farmers had to kill their own pigs is because some of their pigs had reached a weight that was too high to bring to slaughter eventually. Um, so they were, quote unquote, beyond their time, whatever that looks like. But unfortunately for the pigs, of course, unfortunately, but also unfortunately for the farmers, this really disrupted that teleology, that process and that disruption, any disruption. And that's part of what our book is also trying to do, disrupt our thinking. Any disruption helps you to see things in a different way. And I think this is what you're getting at, that the idea is that now, whoa, now this this mechanistic way of producing animals for food um, is interrupted and a new picture can emerge. And that can be very distressing. I thank you for that context. And I'm, I'm wondering, Alice, do you have any thoughts on how or, or if there's a lasting impact for those individuals on that disruption and how they view now their work that they consider meaningful? We certainly, I mean, we were looking at deflections in connection with this particular case. So we weren't looking at learning on the parts of the individual farmers. I suppose it's possible, but we were looking at coverage in major news media that were focusing on emotional distress to farmers. So one of the things that was interesting to us was 
and and this is part of the process of critiquing the um, various contrivances that keep us from seeing what happens to animals is that even at that moment is one of the ways we thought of it, even at that moment when you're finally talking about what's happening to the animals in the, the, as it were, food processing system that Laurie described just now, you, you wind up with these blockages, animals in some horrible, merely financial and logistical sense must be killed. Um, and, um, and even at that moment, what are we worried about? We're worried about damage to human beings. It's emotionally traumatic. So that was the angle that we took, but we were interested. I don't think either of us, I, I'm venturing into a territory, I think we discussed at some point, but I'm not sure. I think we tend to think that some of the horror of cases like that aren't the best teaching tools. So that if you really want to engage people, you're often being somewhat more gentle because people's response to horror can sometimes be so great they don't know what to do with it. So we do um, focus on the work of um, writers as it happens when we're talking about pigs, one historical and one present, who they are talking about horrors, but they're doing it gently. So one is Tolstoy talking about his visits to a slaughterhouse and simply capturing his his response um, to the a kind of unrelenting um, violence visited on an individual pig, making you feel how that doesn't seem necessary. Why are we accepting that? And then another is just a fabulous book written. I, Laura, you'll correct me if I get the date wrong. I think it came out in. 2021 by Daniel Sellermeyer, a book called Summertime, which is about um, some of the horrors visited on animals as a result of the 2019-2020 Australian fires. And she, her approach to um, getting us to understand, have some sense of the immensity of the awfulness of what happened, what it meant for animals, as well as human beings, is to focus on two pigs who were lifelong friends and to, um, to tell the story of one who survived and what the loss of his lifetime friend meant to him so that we simply, it would be something like your researchers listening to the meanings of pig grunts. You're paying attention to the meaning of what this pig's gestures are, his great grief his disorientation so that th that kind of thing could reorient us. If you, if you suddenly started to think of pigs as, as having these incredible stories, which they do, um, then, then that could reorient you. Well, and I love that because one of the things that I've always, you know, been committed to doing is telling the stories of the lives of other animals. And that's really what motivates me in animal behavior. It's great to, you know, publish a paper or whatever, but I, you know, look at, I, you know, I, I had my prairie dogs and I named them all and they had their personalities. And I had one that, boy, this, this guy just would go in the trap. I didn't meet him in, in the trap. And he was just like, I love your food that you're giving and, you know, would be in there and would hang out near me, but not, I, I never sort of crossed that physical boundary uh, or attempted to. And I want to talk a little bit more about 
some of those experiences and how they changed my my perspective and what I do now as a um, and what I'm committed to doing as someone who spends time uh, and 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 hopes for the grace of other animals to let me witness their lives respectfully, but. Before I go there, I kind of something you talked about, Alice, when you were talking about, you know, connecting to the individual lives and challenges and stories and friendships and grief of other animals. It strikes me that um, a project that is trying to do that through individual animals is the Non-Human Rights Project. So um, this is spearheaded by Stephen Wise and. And the purpose is to essentially legally establish rights for other species where, you know, liberty, autonomy, equality, and fairness are recognized. And, and I think we have a long way to go, even with other groups of humans and, um, and other animals. And there's a tendency, and I'm not criticizing the project at all, but, but of course it, it goes to sort of the mega fauna, the charismatic um, individuals. Uh, so you've got your orangutans, your chimpanzees, elephants, you know, things that really, you know, many people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, that's happening to a dolphin. Like, that's not permitted. And and it kind of circles back to that idea of ranking because nobody's taken up the case for like a rat to have those rights. And so so can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, so I think one of the things that's really important, and I, I think you said, well, I don't want to criticize it. Well, I do. So I will. And I'm not taking Alice's view. So Alice's, I'll, I'll let, leave Alice off the hook if she doesn't want to take this criticism on. But it is it, this in this way, we do share a, the critic, the critical lens on this project. And that is it's a very. Um, it's a project that, as you say, focuses on a particular set of capacities that humans find valuable in each other. Those are capacities of autonomy and theory of mind and certain kind of rationality and certain kind of linguistic abilities. And this is set up in a system that's fundamentally designed for able-bodied humans and not even all able-bodied humans, because it was a legal system that excluded Black people, for example, <laughs> and um, and women didn't have rights. So this is a system that is already an exclusionary system. And what the Non-Human Rights Project is trying to do is extend the system uh, to those, as you put it, megafauna or, or, or these very high, quote unquote, high minded or high level uh, other animals. Um, and fundamentally, our view is that this is a problem and it's a problem for a variety of reasons, not least of which is um, it's making certain kinds of generalizations about valuable qualities that we can learn from the outside. And this is now I'm definitely borrowing from Alice and bringing those in as opposed to recognizing, as Alice was just talking about, the meaning of uh, the experiences of the animal from the animal's point of view. Um, so it's a kind of ventriloquism that's required in the legal system, but it's a speaking for others that happens um, only for certain others. And they are very charismatic others um, that I think is going to reinforce rather than have us critically interrogate the systems of hierarchies that we started out talking about. Yeah, Alice. 
I, I, I mean, I think if you read our book, you see that I agree with Lori. We wrote a book which says the things, not in, not in relation to the non-human rights project, but, but says the things that Lori was saying, having said all of that, um, I just think it's important to say that we also can feel for some of the stories of the individual animals that they're advocating for. Um, I think this is both of us and think, um, and also realize that that um, that social change happens in mysterious ways. It could be a big paradigm shift for people if um, if they won one of their cases. They lost one just recently. Happy the elephant. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, um, and we're committed to to yeah building bonds of solidarity among activists and with animals as much as possible uh, at the same time one has to worry about strategies that reinforce some of the very hierarchies which are most problematic right and i mean um, i can i can see the logic in the sense that okay we can make gradual change and ultimately we'll get to this other place um that we we think we want to go to but the interesting thing is, um, I think, if it were based on those characteristics that we value in humans, then rats should definitely be included. Because, you know, if you're thinking about That's, yeah. cooperation and friendship and uh, essentially non-bias, um, then then rats are the uh, an epitome of, of the expression of all the things that we think are the best. Um, in humans, setting that aside, sentience, you, you, sentience, you brought this up and, you know, I'm in a field where ethology and you guys talk about this in the book has perpetrated some of the worst experiments on other animals to answer questions. And the interesting thing is, you know, Darwin acknowledged the emotions, the mind and the suffering of other animals. And yet there was, there's been this long history and still some uh, scientists who refuse to express the simple fact that other species are sentient and they have consciousness and they have language and they have theory of mind, even if it doesn't look exactly, you know, like ours. Um, and, and I'm talking about everything from ants and fish to those that we're more willing to consider like dolphins and chimpanzees. And, and so, you know, how, how much, and I, I know I'm opening up a can of worms here, but how much have other scientists, like in my field, contributed to the continued, like if every single animal behavior said, hey, you know what, uh, this ant has uh, an experience and it's valuable and we don't understand how to talk to the ant, but we know that they're talking to each other and their way of talking is simply different than ours. It's not better. It's not worse. It doesn't necessarily contain more or less information. You know, what would that do to shift the general sort of public of how they thought about other species? Hmm. Um, there's so much in that question, Jennifer, this is Alice. And, um, and and one of the ways you framed it was, you know, how much are animal, people doing animal behavioral studies responsible? And I think uh, I'm going to pick up on the line from our book together that allows us to show ways in which philosophers are responsible 
for the, uh, the the deformation of animal behavioral studies, and that's natural. From we don't want to suggest that that somehow our discipline hasn't contributed to these issues. So, so one of the things you get inherited from various traditions and philosophy that shapes the way that um, animal behavioral studies um, develop from Darwin up until the present through you know, various emphases at post-Darwin on behaviorism to the development of um, ethology and then various forms of cognitive ethology is you get a, a residual set of assumptions which are often unacknowledged, but are very philosophical and are inherited from the philosophical tradition. And there are assumptions about how when you're looking at animal behavior, you have to be looking at something which is in itself psychologically neutral. And this sets up um, um, a kind of posture that's really familiar. So people studying complex creatures, a scientist, researcher studying complex creatures like um, octopuses. I'm thinking of a line in Peter Godfrey Smith's um, wonderful book, Other Minds, just because we talk about it, we'll say things like, um, well, skepticism about whether they're really feeling something, these octopuses, is always possible. But we've made a really good case because the idea is we're somehow cut off from being sure that the animal's experiencing. That's a philosophical posture that's really familiar to anybody who spent a lot of time teaching epistemology and the problem of other minds to students because um, it's a classical thought stemming from you know, the 16th century at least um, that were cut off from other human minds in the same way. And one of the things you said earlier about your own practice with prairie dogs, for instance, that you name them, that you try to relate to them, we are actually trying to draw attention to the work of um, animal behavioral researchers who adopt these supposedly, we don't agree they're non-scientific, but these sort of non-recommended, more engaged practices with their animals and understand them better as a result. So for us, one touchstone is Jane Goodall's work for lots of people where she's naming her chimpanzees, um, taking an interest in their social bonds and forming social bonds with them herself. Um, we're interested in, you know, divers who are relating to not just observing in a clinical way octopuses and so forth. And the philosophical idea there is actually it's a confusion that behavioral scientists have inherited from philosophy to think that the the world is as um, spare as they seem to think that there are things in the world which are psychologically meaningful behaviors. And there's possible to tell a really serious and compelling philosophical story about how that's what you're seeing when you look at animals. Um, you don't have some merely physical substrate that you then connect with psychological meaning. No, you're actually seeing the psychologically meaningful expression itself. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm going to return to um, to prairie dogs for a second. And then I've, I'm going to be curious what both of you or, or Lori thinks about this. You know, part of my work and one one of the reasons why I haven't done any active field studies um, that in, that were similar to what I did in my uh, dissertation work is because I had to trap and mark 
uh, prairie dogs. And of course, because the requirement is that you got to be able to tell individuals apart. Otherwise, you can't say anything meaningful. You don't know who was doing what. And and I found this so upsetting. Um, and, and I was 100% committed to not what I believed uh, was not causing distress to the prairie dogs during this process. And yet, of course, the very act of them getting in a trap is distressing. Then being handled by a bunch of large humans, um, being injected by a microchip and, uh, you know, and then released was distressing to different degrees to different individuals. So I had one, and this is two actually that changed my whole perspective on, I will not do this anymore, ever, period, end of story. If I can't ask a question and get an answer without molesting physically, another another species i won't it's not an interesting question two individuals one literally died instantly as soon as we she was revived by the veterinarian <laughs> but she saw us coming in the trap and just died and he revived her and I, we let her go immediately second one was a female who had just had a litter of pups so she was nursing and in the process, the vet said to me, you know, I can feel her body tensing. And I said, let her go, let her go immediately. And, and so we let her go. And I was so upset <laughs> about, you know, and then the others like easy, he just hung out and went in the trap and, you know, and Christmas and tinsel and, you know, Antonio Banderas, a very good looking prairie dog. Um, you know, they were, they seemed to kind of, they were willing to keep going in and in and in and in and, and interact in that way. But, but I, I decided I don't ever want to trap and mark prairie dogs again. And so I've started looking at photographs because you can tell their faces apart they look like individuals they are individuals and i just can't memorize you know 250 prairie dog faces but a computer can and so i don't have to do that anymore to be able to interact with them or observe them or or watch their lives and tell their story and you know i'm just sort of you know that's my that was my ethical dilemma um, and yet I was in a system that required me to prove that I could tell individuals apart. So any any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I have a couple um, that, um, and I'll try to figure out how to bring that back to um, our book project. But, um, you know, I work with a group of behaviorists um, and mostly with chimpanzees and there are over 300 chimps there and they they know every face so I don't know if I really think it's impossible to know the difference between a large number 200 300 animals given that it is happening right so as we would say it's it's possible because it's actual so um, I think you could do that. Um, but that gets back to uh, this will get us back to some of the things that we talk about somewhat in, indirectly in the book. And that is that um, there are these structures, um, both scientific structures and practices, but also structures and practices of thinking that Alice was talking about that kind of shape how it is that we understand 
what counts as knowledge generation or knowledge production. And I think that there is a sense in which early ways of thinking about minds, and this is just another way of putting what Alice put so beautifully, um, that there's a way of understanding minds not as these sort of blank slates that we then can try to figure out what's going on on them, but rather there's a richness to these these minds. So you're not going to see all um, prairie dogs responding in the same way to being trapped in and being marked. Um, I also just want to sort of as an aside suggest that um, there's an increasing number of people both to, who are doing cognitive ethological work, um, but also doing behavioral research on at sanctuaries for animals um, in which all sorts of information, and I'm talking about sanctuaries, both um, sanctuaries for animals in, who are formerly farmed animals, sanctuaries for wild animals in this country, but also sanctuaries in range countries in Africa and Indonesia um, and other parts of, of the world where you can learn a lot from the animals, um, from their relationships about what they're thinking and feeling and experiencing um, without being invasive, that that is an important new ethical development in behavioral research that I hope takes off. I, I completely agree. And I know that, that I have completely changed the way, you know, um, and like I'm working on a paper right now where I have photographs proving different individuals, you know, okay, do you need a scar on the nose to tell you? Here it is. I know that this is a different prairie dog than that prairie dog than that prairie dog. And, um, but I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. So I want to kind of just uh, close with a few, a few um, things, you know, one, I appreciate a lot um, what Animal Crisis does because it, it's really getting at the heart of changing and improving our relationship with other species. And I think that can also change and improve our relationship um, with each other. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you think for the average person, how can, how can we interact with nature and other species in a way that embraces their individuality um, and the lives that they live? Like, what can we literally do? Well, one thing we could do, um, uh, and one th some of the things that we we talk about or think about doing is again re um, rethinking the ways in which we've been trained to think about animals, right? So this is what we've been talking about, and it's one of the main important moves in our book is that we need to see what's right in front of us take away all of the ideas and the ideologies and the theories we were taught in graduate school or in high school about what animals are and try to see them and their relationships and their lives um, in front of us to develop or hone um, our sensitivities to their different experiences. They're not the same. Um, and to develop a solidarity with these other beings um, to try to um, help make their experiences more visible to others. That's one of the ways of thinking about what we're doing in the book, um, but also to work to protect them because it is, as we say, it's a crisis um, and animals um, and many marginal human groups are really um, threatened in a variety of ways by our uh, our activities. Alan? 
Well, if I add something to that, I'm only adding in the sense of picking up something Laurie said earlier, which is important for both of us, is that um, one of the things that we're trying to do is open up space for that individual attention to be informed by an understanding of histories and the histories that um, that this is part of what Laurie's saying and saying, think of the way, you know, we have to be capable of questioning the ways that we've been trained to think about animals. And, and part of that self knowledge that we're striving for involves understanding some of the historical and political forces that um, um, underlie the treating of animals as mere resources, simply whose bodies and reproductive capacities can simply be used. And, um, and, uh, and also seeing that, that that's connected to awful ways of treating human beings. And, and, and that's a lot to expect out of your interaction with animals, but in particular cases, maybe not so much because, you know, if it is the pig in the slaughterhouse or it is uh, an orangutan in a place in Indonesia that's being deforested for palm oil, um, in some sense, the, the present evidence of those historical forces is right in front of us. And so just to sort of see them, see it for what it is, it, it does place demands, but it can be gradual and focused on individuals with that historical lens. Yeah. And, you know, so I want everybody to go get a copy of Animal Crisis, A New Critical Theory. And I've said often on this podcast that I believe you know, wildlife and nature conservation or ecosystem preservation is as much about um, other species as it is about social justice for um, humans as well. And and this is something that that you guys weave together really um, nicely in the book. And and it it sparks a lot of of thinking that people need to do. And you know, and I think that for many people, you know, they may not connect with. Um, uh, blue penguins washing up dead um, or puffins or billions of species uh, boiling to death as high temperatures go. But at the end of the day, we all are connected. And so I appreciate all of the work that the two of you are doing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been great. This is such a terrific book, and it really gives context to many of the practices we have today when it comes to how we rationalize the violence we perpetrate on other species. One of the things that really stands out is how the debasing of other animals is connected to the prejudices perpetrated on certain groups of humans. It also addresses the mistaken belief that the way to go is to elevate all humans above all other animals. That leaves us collectively agreeing it's all right to execute aggression, violence, abuse, and destruction on the natural world and all the species that we share this planet with. I'm here to tell you, my friends, it doesn't work that way. You may think that puffins and little blue penguins washing ashore dead has nothing to do with you or your life, but it does. 
The anguish that other species are experiencing is right there for us, just around the corner. The longer we believe that we are separate and disconnected from other animals, the greater our suffering will be. I really believe that. All right, that's all for this week. Next week, we are talking to veterinarian and author Tim Otterson, someone who knows all about the magic of connecting with other critters. And hey, if you like the show, please, please give it a review and share it. I'm pretty terrible at marketing, (laughs) Um, but we are growing. And one of the best ways for others to find this podcast is if you help spread the word. Thanks for listening.